0: Hey everyone, we are back. Reading aloud again. This is X, reading from We Exist. We are on chapter 2. I don't believe that. And we are talking about a healthier tomorrow. One second, I will get into this reading. Hope you guys had a great day. It's a uh, new moon right now in Taurus season. Been fasting all day to, uh... it helps that my moon is in Taurus so that I can at least do my best to cleanse some of the uh, energetic emotions that I have. But um, anyways, okay. So, a healthier tomorrow. Of course, There are some, if not a majority of people on this planet who disregard the concept of holistic medicine entirely. Wow. Okay, let me restart that again. Of course, there are some, if not a majority of people on this planet who disregard the concept of holistic medicine entirely, mainly because they believe it to be pseudoscience. Sadly, hold on. Sadly, this doesn't help our situation in regards to creating a sustainable health system for everyone. This is because our current solution for most of our health issues, at least the solution deemed to be in our best interest when treating most illnesses, is to prescribe patients with an absurd amount of man-made drugs. Obviously, other methods such as surgery and radiation are considered if the preliminary treatments fail. However, for the most part, it seems like most practitioners are either forced to or worse willing to prescribe these drugs to their patients knowing full well that they contain a laundry list of notorious side effects. Nonetheless, the blame behind our lacking health industry cannot fall entirely on the shoulders of our practitioners. And although pharmaceutical companies should shoulder some of the blame, there is a third party that needs to be addressed. Patients. Sure, these companies are, are enabling doctors to write prescriptions, sometimes paying them handsomely to do so. However, it is us, their patients, that are allowing this practice to continue. If you think about it, what good is a supply if it holds no demand, right? Furthermore, whether you want to believe it or not, we, the people on this planet, dictate the future of modern medicine. Therefore, by continuing to purchase these man-made drugs, we give consent to any and all pharmaceutical companies to test their drugs on us. And although most drugs... Um, Face numerous trials before hitting the market, first testing on animals, usually mice or rats, then upon FDA approval, moving on to humans, usually split into three phases, each increasing in the number of healthy volunteers. The real testing happens after the trials are completed and the drug hits the shelves, mainly because the initial trials are conducted solely for FDA approval. It is at this stage that the creators and manufacturers of these drugs gather the real data, therefore discovering the true side effects of their creations. As for what causes these side effects to occur, the answer is simple. Geometry. We're all shapes on the inside. For the most part, a drug is efficient because its molecular structure shape is similar to that of a particular receptor in the body. Therefore, when said drug receptor binds to the chemicals of the drug hold on. Oh, fuck me. One second. You need to go there. Um, one second. Therefore, when said drug and receptor bind, the chemical of the drug is released into the receptor, eventually shifting from chemical to electrical impulse. This impulse is then decoded by the brain and action is taken. Side effects, on the other hand, occur because the drug shares its shape with too many receptors. This, of course, is how Cara Santamaria, neuroscientist and science communicator, explained it on episode 539 of the Joe Rogan Experience. Continuing from the above, Maria explained that because all drugs are molecules, and because all molecules have a geometric shape when taken, they seek out and bind with whatever receptors share this similar shape. Unfortunately, because these shapes are not necessarily unique, and because the body is filled with numerous receptors, if the drug and receptors, and the and receptor match, the drug enters regardless of intended purpose. Therefore, when you see a commercial with a laundry list of side effects, this is because the drug I- being promoted fits nicely into the receptors that cause each issue. To make matters worse, because we have yet to discover whether or not receptors have their own unique markers, pharmaceutical companies create additional drugs, ones that match the similar shape, hopefully to rectify the new issues. Of course, this starts a chain reaction where patients are subjected to numerous pills, all because the initial drug caused more issues than it solved. And yet, this is okay because we believe it's the best way at least in the Western world, and at least that we can sustain our health within. Extrasensory healing, more than just pseudoscience. Yet, we rarely question why, let alone acknowledge the fact that our health care system keeps us sick. And although pharmaceutical companies do play a massive role in keeping us this way, it is also likely that modern-day science is simply behind the curve when it comes to understanding human beings. And although the medical industry has made great leaps and bounds when it comes to indexing the, body, the human body, thanks to extensive research and experimentation, there are two other factors involved when it comes to being human. The mind and the soul. Of course, the biggest reasons these two factors rarely get the same recognition as the body is because it's almost impossible to find a baseline for either. Thus, because the majority of our discoveries are based on the five senses, what we see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, it's difficult to measure anything beyond them that is unless we become open to the possibility of more senses. Unfortunately, this creates a red flag for most people religiously um, most people who practice science, i.e., who religiously practice science. Usually because it doesn't fit within their definition of operations knowledge about or study of the natural world based on facts learned through experimentation and observation. Of course, the above definition is continuously changing as more and more scientists begin to study and experiment with objects that are considered unnatural, or better put, man-made. However, since a majority of scientists still have a difficult time accepting anything beyond what they can control, They ignore the idea that both the mind and the soul play key roles in our overall well-being, including the health of our bodies. And although some holistic methods and practices have been around for a while, including naturopathy, acupuncture, eating well, including juicing, and proper exercise, there are still a number of methods waiting to be explored and experimented with, at least by the masses. These include Reiki, meditation, including float tanks, healing touch, QHHT, and other types of hypnosis therapy, Qigong, and some psychedelic drugs, just to name a few. Unfortunately, because both sides are yet to collaborate with one another, Therefore, experimenting, recording, and sharing these findings, these alternative methods of, we- of me- medicine remain sidelined, which is unfortunate mainly because they actually work as long as the patient is willing to give them a chance. More than just mysticism. Of course, the idea that The mind can be used to heal the body, stirs up an even greater subject within both the medical and scientific community. The subject I am referring to is the placebo effect, which is described as a beneficial effect produced by a placebo drug or treatment, one that cannot be attributed to the properties of the placebo itself and must therefore be due to the patient's belief in said treatment. This, of course, showcases the power of the mind, considering that sometimes believing is all that matters when it comes to the act of healing. Of course, I'm not saying this is true in every case, but thanks to the discovery of the placebo effect, it is now undeniable that the mind pl- plays a role in our ability to heal. However, because the overall idea of a placebo is to find out if a drug or treatment is capable of curing an illness or disease, scientists rarely take into account its true purpose. If they did, they'd have to venture into unknown territory explaining, exploring the vastness of the the universal mind, which to some seems impossible. Secondly, the idea that it is a patient's belief that affects the end res- the, the end result of a drug or treatment Wait. Secondly, the idea that it is a patient's belief that affects the end result of a drug is rudimentary at best. It is only considered a belief because most scientists have no clue how to measure the mind properly, at least beyond psychology, and thus, they place the unanticipated result in a category labeled the unknown. Unfortunately, this only hinders our chances of learning how to properly heal ourselves, that is, beyond anything that continues to make us sick. This is why the placebo effect plays such an important role in the advancement of both science and medicine. Not only is, does it show that man-made drugs aren't always the answer, but it also opens the door to exploring the mind as a healing device. Sure, it, makes, it may take years... One second... may take years or even centuries to get everyone on board, but how is that any different than any other major scientific discovery made in recent history? Furthermore, what if we discover that it's true, that how we think, the mind, and how we feel, the heart, plays an active role in our ability to heal, no matter the method of use? And although it may shut down doors at our local pharmaceutical companies, it also opens up doors to new methods and techniques that are healthier than the chemical cocktails we consume on a daily basis, mainly because these methods and techniques use the power of our own bodies to heal ourselves and others, both mentally and physically. Naturally, there will be some who stick to the idea that beliefs, Are what caused these placebos to actually work, and although they aren't technically wrong, it is still a rudimentary way of looking at the phenomenon. Unfortunately, due to a lack of any real experimentation on the vastness of the mind, scientists have no actual measurements to fall back on, and thus must claim it to be "quote unquote" something patients already believed would work, but. Where does that line of thinking end? At what point do we stop looking at the placebo effect as mysticism and start performing experiments on whether or not our thoughts and emotions play a role in the healing of our bodies as well as causing them or, sorry, as well as causing them harm? Considering that beliefs are nothing more than thoughts charged with emotions, all the while following the principles of faith, And although most scientific communities condemn the use of faith within their practices, as it largely relates to their polar opposite religion, the sheer origin of science, the Big Bang, is actually based on its principles, that we give scientists one free miracle, and from there they can explain everything else from that point forward. And although scientists are actively seeking an answer to what lays beyond the small speck of light that they believe started at all, it doesn't change the fact that the backbone of modern day science isn't one hundred percent based on proof. Opening a window. And if that's the case, why is it so hard for us to mix a little bit of faith into our scientific process or practices? Of course, I'm not talking about the type of faith associated with religion, but the type of faith associated with trusting the process. Furthermore, why is it so hard for some, if not most people, to move beyond the need for proof, especially when it comes to the idea of exploring the unknown? To me, it is more important to ask what if than it is to seek proof, basically because asking what if allows us to explore numerous subjects at the same time without one subject being dominant. Unfortunately, in order to do this, it also requires a skill that most people have left completely dormant, to be able to see numerous perspectives at once, all without being judgmental. Of course, this also means we have to get rid of our incessant need for right and wrong thinking and simply accept things as um, things for what they are. Moreover, asking what if and seeing things from numerous perspectives allows for a more fluid approach when creating theories, as no peace is ever permanent. Thus <clears throat> <by> being <clears throat> thus, by being fluid, It also allows for newer thoughts to be added, be them from yourself or from others. This is because the fluid approach allows the theory to act as an open source code rather than a closed system. This, of course, is something it seems the scientific community consistently struggles with As the moment anything is considered proven or true, it tends to stop being examined and therefore becomes a closed system, which is nothing more than a belief used to limit our potential to evolve beyond the intelligent ape that science contends we are. One second. We pledge allegiance to the system." Of course, the same can be said about most religious communities, which I also consider to be closed systems, however their beliefs aren't necessarily based on proof, but faith. This also includes those of the Christian faith whose fanatics are quick to condemn non-believers to hell, and while some genuinely care about those they condemn, it also seems like a major like the majority do this simply because they've been conditioned to believe hell exists. Unfortunately, at least for most, if not all Christians, while the term hell is used in both the Old and New Testament, the concept of hell is actually man-made. In fact, it has been propagated by Christian philosophers since the death of Christ until today, starting in 18 or Uh, 187 AD, when, oh God, I'm going to butcher this name, Athenagoras of Athens first introduced the concept of an immortal soul burning in eternal hell. Additionally, while most members tend to accept the word or accept it with blind faith, the quote-unquote word of God, for the most part has been used as a controlling mechanism for the powers for those in power not only against their followers but against non-believers as well and while the 10 commandments do merit some value of their own they apparently aren't enough thus in order to keep people under control a new and alternative concept was needed enter the concept of hell more than monsters under your bed. And while the concept of hell was initially introduced to strike the fear of God back into humankind, it eventually became a ritual used to frighten children. To me, this sounds similar to the threat kids receive by their parents in regards to Santa Claus. Unfortunately, conditioning children to believe in hell isn't quite the same as tricking them into believing a man in a red suit gives them gifts this is because at some point most children lose their belief in santa claus while the same cannot be said about their belief in hell perhaps this is because most children who grow up in the in a christian environment are also consistently subjected to the torment of actually going there and while this is happening at home and at church they are also subjugated to an education system specifically designed to eradicate their imaginations. Thus, the combination of both the belief in hell and the loss of their imaginations creates a cycle causing these same children, upon becoming parents, to push the same ritual on to their own children, who then do the same to theirs. And while it may seem like I'm coming down hard on Christians, It is meant more as a wake-up call to those with open minds that if we ever want to see significant change on this planet, we first need to start with how we raise our children, considering that they will be the ones cleaning the messes and mistakes we create and leave behind. Teach them well and let them lead the way. You see, It is no secret that from birth till roughly the age of 18, our children and young adults act as sponges, not only to our actions and to those of prior generations, but also to the words told to us or told and taught to them. Taught to them by parents, teachers, peers, pastors, government officials, celebrities, and other media moguls, just to name a few. And while DNA does play a key role in their overall development, think morphic resonance, there is also another entity that becomes or that helps define who they become. This entity, as mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, is called the system. And although most conspiracy theorists believe that, the system was created to allow a handful of people to rule over the many. It is only a smokescreen for its true creator, the ego. Of course, this will make more sense upon um, discussions in To Create, which I will go into what I believe the ego is and what it is meant for and whatnot. So let's focus on the system. So for now, let's focus on the system and how it affects our civilization, especially those still growing up. The thing is, because of the way the system has been designed, it forces most children and young adults to act as parents instead of acting as birds of their own flock. And while most of our planet agrees that the system and... and or that the system, an invisible force consisting of strict rules and regulations, better known as laws, is vital to our survival, we rarely take into account the damage it's doing to our ability to thrive. Thus, instead of seeking freedom, we seek security. Furthermore, because this system has been passed down for millennia without necessarily being challenged It has created a belief that since society has always been this way, there is nothing we can do to change it. And because we've allowed this belief to define our current reality, we consistently fail at guiding our younger generations and become truly independent. And while we may think that teaching them to live within the system actually creates independence, it only furthers the cycle of slavery that the system was designed to create. Thus, by teaching our children to be truly independent, we can encourage them to step outside the shadows of our governing parents, the government, and or God, and hopefully create a new civilization where we are not only accountable to ourselves, but also to each other. Of course, in order to do this, we'll need to exercise compassion, Unfortunately, because the definition of compassion is written to support the system, it is extremely limited. Therefore, perhaps an alternative definition is needed, one that will allow everyone to receive what they need, guilt-free, instead of a select few. However, before creating an alternative definition, perhaps it is wise to revisit the current one. compassion for all, not just a few. As of 2015, the definition of compassion described by Merriam Webster online is as followed. A feeling of wanting to help someone who is sick, hungry, in trouble, etc. And while it may sound amazing on paper, looking at it from a more objective point of view, it actually creates a hierarchy where those in the giving position are looked upon as heroes and those who receive are looked upon as victims. And while hierarchies serve a purpose, they serve no purpose in the act of giving. This is because true acts of giving and receiving are meant to be holotropic and not necessarily down like, top-down like a hierarchy. Furthermore, the above definition creates resentment. Not only with the very top looking down at the very bottom, but also within the middle rungs, who are consistently jockeying at each other for position. This is because, for the most part, those in the middle rungs never receive handouts from the top, with hand, never receive handouts from the top, and therefore are left to fend for themselves. Thus, learning if they need. If they ever need something, they have to earn it. This, unfortunately, creates a state of unbalance for individuals within the middle rung as they form an additional belief that if I had to earn it, so do you. Therefore, with this mentality or belief, those in the middle rung, at least the majority, usually hoard what they've earned, rarely sharing with others, especially those in need. And while it is extremely important to exercise independence, it is also important to exercise interdependence, which cannot be learned or executed within a hierarchy. For the most part, the overall overall goal of interdependence is for everyone in the society to be independent and yet be able to rely and allow others to help whenever needed and vice versa. Thus, in order for an interdependent society to function properly, everyone has to be on the same level. By doing so, whenever something is needed, like food or shelter, Nobody calculates the time and effort spent on obtaining said items. Instead, they can happily give of what they can, knowing full well what if, or that if they're ever in need, others will be there to help. Sadly, this is impossible to do within a society based on the current definition of compassion as it relegates those in need of help down to second-class citizens. By doing so, it also segregates those who are able to help from receiving help, simply because they no longer fit the definition. Thus, perhaps it is time to introduce an alternative definition for the term compassion, one that allows all to give and receive freely, without any sort of resentment attached. To me, the best definition of the term compassion stems from the pages of Whitley Strieber's book. It's Whitley Strieber or Whitley Strieber, um, book The Key, A True Encounter. And while the book is filled with extraordinary lessons in personal development, it also unveils a new way of looking at the term compassion. In the book, compassion is described as finding what others need the most and giving it to them. And although it may seem interchangeable with the definition above, it is, in fact, completely different. For the most part, Streber's definition fits within the concept of being holotropic, as it includes everyone and not just those who are sick, hungry, or in trouble. Therefore, it allows all people, including those on the middle rungs, to share freely with one another, mainly because those in the middle rungs are no longer in direct competition with each other, and although it may ruffle the feathers of those currently on top, for the most part it allows everyone to give and receive equally, and while this may sound like socialism, it is completely different. This is because one is derived from the exchange of goods for money, while The other is derived from the simple act of giving and receiving, without any monetary compensation whatsoever. Of course, because we have yet to live in a civilization based on unconditional giving, at least not in recorded history, we fail to see how it is possible to do so. Unfortunately, this is a judgment based out of fear, lack of trust, and ignorance, mainly because... We have zero proof, one way or another, if living in a free society is possible. However, we'll never know unless we drop the belief that it's always been this way and begin to explore and experiment with alternative ways of living and thinking. For it is within exploring and experimentation, along with open and objective imaginations, that we will eventually discover what the human race is truly capable of. Bucking the system. Of course, sorry, of course, this doesn't mean that we have to drop the monetary system altogether, or at least not right away. As Buckminster Fuller once said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. On that note, even if we are eventually able to show that living in a free society is possible, it doesn't mean that everyone on, the planet, on planet Earth will want to live that way. Thus, in order to appease everyone, at least until the monetary system becomes obsolete, a system where the exchange of goods for money or trade still needs to exist, that is, Until we finally move beyond the concept of me, where we. Sorry. Where the majority of. Concern. Hold on. That is, until we finally move beyond the concept of me, where the majority of concerns center on the self and shift into the concept of we, where the majority of concern centers on the whole Hold on. Let me just read that again. Still needs to exist. That is, until we finally move beyond the concept of me, where the majority of concern centers on the self, and we shift into the concept of we, where the majority of concern centers on the whole. However, until that happens, there will always be those that want to live in a hierarchy system as the challenge of being on top drives them towards success and innovation. Of course, because we live in a dualistic universe, the opposite is also true. And while there are billions that thrive within the current system, there are also billions that flounder mainly because they, they operate best within modes of cooperation rather than in modes of competition, which the system thrives upon. However, this also leads to greater complications as it is impossible to predict the pros and cons of living in a free society without first experimenting on all possibilities. Therefore, it is my hope, as future generations come of age, they are encouraged to challenge the status quo and thus when it comes to time when it comes time for them to take their rightful place as leaders of our planet they are free to experiment and explore with the concept of living in a free society that is without living in fear of the system shutting them down All is possible. Which leads back to the concept of the system and how, because of our beliefs, we've allowed it to control or limit us and our ability to thrive. This, of course, is mainly out of fear, basically because we've been conditioned to believe from years of brainwashing, either through education, the eradication of our imagination, religions, you are not God, science, the five senses create our reality reality, and our government, we are your parents. Now that not only do we need all of the above in the current state they operate in, but also that we'll need oh sorry one second. coming to an end and I'm getting tired but you know I feel like I've done decently so far okay um, that not only do we need all of the above in the current state they operate in, but also that will never survive without them. Add to this the idea that of passing down said beliefs from generation to generation either from parent to child or through DNA and perhaps it becomes plausible that this belief, in the system isn't something we've developed on our own but something ingrained within us by the time we come of age. And while it probably seems like I'm intentionally trying to ruffle some feathers, my intention is anything but. If anything, my goal is to free the minds of those willing to explore beyond the system, mainly because they deserve to see the beautiful world hidden beyond the current reality. However, in order to do this, at least from my own personal experience, those that are willing to explore beyond the system will also need to embrace the darkness, and thus, will also need to be as light and flexible as possible. Thus, the importance of shedding ourselves of the biggest weight that hold us back, wait, hold on, Will also need to embrace the darkness and thus will also need to be as light and flexible as possible. Thus, the importance of shedding ourselves of the biggest weights that hold us back. Oh, wait, I have to read that probably. Thus, the importance of shedding ourselves of the biggest weights that currently hold us back, our current beliefs it is also why I've, it is also why the focus on this chapter has been dedicated solely to the idea that beliefs for the most part limit who we are and what we as a civilization can become this is because clinging to a limited number of beliefs typically hold us back from allowing both consciousness and subconscious or our conscious and subconscious minds from observing all possibilities and therefore hindering us from being able to see all situations from numerous perspectives. The reason for this is because all of our thoughts, at some point or another, filter through our belief system, and thus, if a thought doesn't align with any of our beliefs, especially our cores, it is often discarded, instead of being filed away for later. Unfortunately, This is also the main reason why most people automatically respond with, I don't believe that, when someone brings up a topic that returns with no positive matches during their filtration system. However, when we exercise the belief that all is possible, when a thought is filtered through our belief system, because we've widened the parameters to all beliefs, the filtration process returns with at least one if not a number of positive matches. From there, we are able to take these matches and browse through them and begin to see how they connect not only with our current thoughts, but with all of our thoughts combined. Be them of the same topic or something completely different. From there, because we are able to view all matches from an objective point of view, we, also, we are also able to see how everything, including the entire universe, connects together, like small pieces to a giant puzzle. Thus, by doing so, we are also able to see where and how we fit into the universe, both as physical beings and as beings of light. Lastly, by having the belief that all is possible, we are finally able to look objectively at our current reality and see it for what it is, slavery by consent, not just to the system, but to the ego and our spirit. Fortunately, because we believe in all possibilities, if desired, we, um, we can also create an alternate reality, one that is built upon compassion and love, not just for the sick, hungry, or troubled, but for every living being on this planet, including the planet itself. In the end, it comes down to choice. Do we choose to cling to the few core beliefs we've known for our entire lives, even though they keep us in constant bondage, or do we give them up and see where, as an entire civilization, the belief in all possibilities takes us? And while there are some that may jump on board immediately with this new concept, which I think is amazing, there will also be those that struggle with the idea of accepting all possibilities as an actual reality and therefore will continue to use the same get-out-of-jail-free card they've always used during conversations. Quote-unquote, I don't believe that. However, as more and more people adapt the, to the concept of all being possible, I'm certain that the phrase, I don't believe that, will become a distant echo of a forgotten past, much like the times when the gods of Mount Olympus fooled around with the lives of mortals. Of course, some, if not most, will say that the line above reeks of mythology. But who's to say that those in power 3,000 years ago, or 3,000 years from now, won't say the the same thing about us? unless that is, they, too, follow the belief that all is possible. Practice makes perfect. As for those interested in embracing the belief of all being possible, here's an interesting exercise to attempt. During any regular conversation where you feel the urge to say, I don't believe that, instead of ending the conversation or switching the topic to something else, take a step back, mentally and emotionally, and when ready engage in the conversation as if you actually believe the same as the other person if successful you'll be amazed at how much information you can gain by being open to other uh, sorry to the other person's beliefs and perspectives of course there are numerous other exercises you can practice to get used to the belief of all being possible however for now focus on being the person that continues conversations and not the one who ends them. Of course, once the conversation ends, you can go back to believing whatever you want. That is, unless you enjoyed the experience. And if that's the case, I say keep going. In the end, who knows what will happen? Perhaps you'll meet someone amazing, or perhaps you'll create something that will change the world, hopefully for the better. If anything, you'll gain an objective point of view on our reality, which will then allow you to make a conscious choice on whether or not you want to be in uh, sorry a person that says, tell me more, or one that says, I don't believe that. Or as Morpheus asked Neo, do you take the red pill or the blue pill? Whatever you choose, make sure it's right for you. Because the moment you choose the belief of all possibilities, there's no going back. Trust me on this. And with that, it's time to move on to the next chapter, I Feel Therefore I Am, where we get a little more intimate with our emotions, the energy force that flows through our bodies and the rest of the universe. Thank you. Right on. Right on. We made it through. I stumbled a bit on that one, but you know what? I was getting tired, and my nose kept itching. still does. And now it is time to save this and let you get back to your day, night, evening, morning, wherever you are in the world. Peace, and be well.